Hello and welcome to the podcast of Chesboro Baptist Church. Today was Palm Sunday at church and so we preached from Luke chapter 19 on Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The title of the message this morning is The Cult, The Corner, and The Consequence. Please enjoy. Luke chapter 19 this morning, Luke chapter 19. If you have your places in Luke chapter 19, I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to stand one last time in respect and reverence to the Word of God. We'll begin reading in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 28. The Bible says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat, loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they were sent their way, and they found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners said unto them, why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. The title of the message this morning is The Colt, the Corner, and the Consequence. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you just please bless the message today. I pray the Holy Spirit down upon this place. Lord, these are people in here today who are looking to be filled with the Spirit of God. These are people in here today who are looking to be fed from the Word of God. They want something from heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd feed us all and that you'd fill us all with your Spirit. Give us something special from your Word today. For as this in Jesus Christ's precious name, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here in Luke chapter 19, we find a massive shift from how Jesus has been conducting his ministry. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been picking and choosing the times in which he would reveal to people that he was in fact the Savior. That he was picking and choosing to whom he would proclaim that he was the Messiah. Why in Mark chapter 3, after he casted out the demons... Uh, he instructed the demons and commanded them that they should tell no man who he was. Matthew chapter 8, uh, he would heal people and send them on their way. And then he would say, go and tell no man. And uh, in, in uh, Mark 5, he, would heal, he healed someone and said, hey, don't tell people I did it. Give the credit to the, of the healing to God the Father. And uh, in, in Mark chapter 8, he straight up told his disciples to tell no man who he was. Now, this is, this is interesting. This is like, this goes against what you think Jesus would be there to do. You would think that Jesus would be there to tell people that he was the Messiah, not to keep it a secret. Now, there were certain, there were certain reasons why Jesus would sometimes do this. Why sometimes 
Jesus was afraid that if people were always clamoring around him to get miracles, that it would prevent him from doing what he was really there to do. And let me tell you what he was really there to do is he was really there to preach. He was there to preach. And if they were always clamoring around him and, and, and trying begging for healings, then he couldn't preach. And that's what he was there to do to preach. Another reason, other times he was just being modest and other times he was just being humble. But for the most part, the reason why Jesus didn't want people in certain situations and didn't want certain people to know who he was, he didn't want them to know before he was ready for them to know. It's as simple as that. You see, when it came to the Messiah, the Jews had certain expectations of the coming Messiah. In fact, there, are some, there were some Jews that believed that a Messiah wouldn't even come. There were other Jews that believed two messiahs would come, that one would be a king, a descendant from David, and that the other one uh, would be a Levite, a priest, and they believed in two messiahs coming. But you see, for the most part, what the Jews really wanted out of a messiah, what they really wanted, go ahead, what they really wanted from a messiah is they wanted, uh, they wanted a warrior king. They wanted someone, to a warrior king, to come, and uh, they wanted a warrior king to take them from the Romans, and, and uh, that, that, that's what they wanted uh, out, of, out of the Messiah. But um, what I'm here to tell you today, give me just a second. Let me find my place again. The Jesus knew that if he subverted the Jews, uh, if he subverted their expectations too soon, Jesus knew he would be crucified before it was time. And Jesus knew this. And uh, Jesus went through excruciatingly, uh, uh, excruciating great lengths, painstaking, meticulous lengths to make sure that Old Testament was, 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 that the Old Testament prophecies were adhered to. He made sure that the Old Testament prophecies um, were, were adhered to. He wanted them fulfilled down to the letter. Why? Because these were the signs that he would come. These were the signs that he was the Messiah. And, uh, you know, however, here in Luke chapter 19, the time for secrets was over. In Luke chapter 19, the time for covertness had come to a close. The time for mysteries had come to an end. Jesus had been to Jerusalem at least a half a dozen times before during his ministry. But this time when he came to Jerusalem, this was unlike any other time. You see, the cross of Calvary was, was but yet a week away. And it was time for him to proclaim who he was. It was time for him to say that I am the Christ. It was time for him to say that I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. I am the son of man. It was time for him to let everybody know. It was time to let the Pharisees know. And it was time to let the Sadducees know. And it was time to let the priests know. And it was time to let the Levites know. And it was the time for secrets had come to an end. It was time for Jesus to proclaim to everyone for all to hear who he was. This, what we're going to talk about this morning, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. If I could this morning, I'd like to set the stage for you just a little bit. Luke 19, 28 says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. 
And when it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. You see, as you're coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, you're going from 1,200 feet below sea level to 2,700 feet above sea level. So needless to say, you're going to get your exercise in, spend some time on the Stairmaster, because that's quite a climb. It's quite a little climb there, and you're going uphill for a long ways. And when you get to the summit of that climb, where you're at is that the, 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 the peak of that is the summit of the Mount of Olives. Now, on the far side of the Mount of Olives, you've got Jerusalem on one side, and on the far side of the Mount of Olives is what's known as the wilderness side. On the wilderness side of the Mount of Olives, there are two villages. There's Bethage and there's Bethany. As you go through these two villages and you get to the top of the Mount of Olives and you get to the peak, the summit of the Mount of Olives, and you look out from the peak of the Mount of Olives, what you're looking at is a mount called Mount Moriah. On the top of Mount Moriah is the temple in Jerusalem. In the valley, the valley between these two mountains is called the Kidron Valley. Now, in the Kidron Valley is Jerusalem, kind of tucked up under Mount Moriah. And in the Kidron Valley, when he made his descent into the Kidron Valley, this is where Jesus would make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Now, like I said before, Jesus went out of his way to make sure the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to discuss three prophecies this morning that were fulfilled on that day, on Palm Sunday. And I'm going to discuss these three prophecies. And, I'm, and I, I, what I'm going to do is when I talk about these, I'm going to make spiritual applications. And I'm going to apply those to our lives. The first thing I want to tell you about this morning is the prophecy of the cult. The prophecy of the cult. Let's read verses 30 through 35. Uh, once again, and saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never a man sat, loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that, that sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them, and as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and cast their garments upon the colt. And they sat Jesus thereon. Now, this prophecy of the colt, it actually takes us back to Zechariah 9.9. Let me read that for you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, uh, there were a couple reasons why he was on a colt. One reason why he was on a colt was because if he would have been on a full-grown horse, that would have made him a man of war. And Jesus was not there at that time to be a man of war. That was not the reason for him coming there. The second reason is because this colt, no man had ever ridden on this colt. This colt had never been broken. So this showed not only Jesus' command over nature, 
But it also showed how unique Jesus was and how special he was at this time because he was doing something that nobody else had done before. But I also want you to see this morning that in this little story, there, there's some other players. There's some other players at work here we're going to talk about. One such is, is the disciples. The disciples are a player in this little story. Now, if I were to come up to you right now and I would say, hey, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go across the street. Don't go to that house. Don't knock on the door. Just go in. Rummage through the drawers. Find me a flathead screwdriver and bring it back to me. Well, if I asked you to do that, you, you, you might ask me a couple questions. You might say, okay, um, is anybody over there? To which my answer would say, I don't know. And okay. And, uh, you know, I, I, then I'd ask, okay, does, does anyone know that I'm coming? And, of course, my answer would be no. No one knows you're coming. And then you might ask, okay, have you ever done anything like this before? And uh, to which my answer would be no, never done anything like this before. And you probably get tired of beating around the bush by this point, And you'd probably come out and straight up ask me, do you have permission to send me in that house without knocking and get a screwdriver and bring it back to you? And once again, my answer to you would be no. Now, of course, after you got done looking at me like a calf look, looks at a new gate, you would probably refuse my request. But then again, I'm not Jesus, am I? Now, here's the thing, though. Uh, the thing is, is, you know, still asking someone to go up to somebody else and take their things without clear and explicit permission goes against our very nature. It goes against our very nature because it's, it's nerve wracking. But the thing is, is the disciples did not hesitate. The disciples did not stop. They did not ask any questions. Jesus told them what to do, and they immediately stepped out, and they immediately did that, what Jesus asked them to do, even though it was against their nature. Why? Because they had faith in the Lord. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. You have to step out in faith. Let me tell you something today. Stepping out of faith in faith is a very scary, scary thing to do. It's a very scary thing to take a leap of faith. In the physical world, if you jump off a cliff and you can't see the bottom, that is a very good way to break your neck. In fact, uh, my, my dad has a, a camp on the Bogachit River, and I remember being down there a couple years ago swimming, and there's a cliff right around the bend from his camp, and a guy did that. He jumped off the cliff, uh, hit the water, hit the ground in the water because it was shallow, broke his neck. I had to help the paramedics pick this guy up, out of, carry this guy out of the river, and today he's a paraplegic. You, in the physical world, you don't look before you leap. Or you, you look before you leap. You make sure you can see the bottom. But we're not talking about the physical world today. We're talking about the spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, the Lord says, I need you to trust me. 
I need you to trust me. I need you to trust that I know what I'm doing. I need you to trust that I'm going to take care of you. I need you to step out in faith. I need you to exercise your faith. I need you to stretch your faith. I need you to step out and live by faith because that's the only way you're going to please me. You have to take steps of faith. And it's hard sometimes. It's hard when you got to pay your tithe, but you have a bill due. And if you pay your tithe, you can't pay your bill. That is a hard place to be in. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you I've always won that battle. I, I'm not going to tell you that because that would be a lie. I've lost that battle before, but I've won it too. And you know what? You have to step out in faith. You have to take leaps of faith. God says, don't worry about seeing the bottom. You jump out and you let me take care of you. Now, the second thing I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about the owners of the cult. I want to talk about the owners of the cult. What they did took faith as well. Imagine someone coming up to you and taking your things without explanation. And then when they took your thing, you looked at them and said, why in the world are you taking this? And they looked at you and said, God told me to do it. Well, after you got done looking at them like they were cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, you'd probably call the police. Or you'd probably do something about it. But you see, just like the cult was under the influence of the Lord, the owners of the cult were under the influence of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When God tells your heart to do something, are you willing to follow that? Are you willing to do what the Lord tells you to do? Are you willing to be led by the Spirit? Let me read for you Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. These men, the owners of this animal, they were led by the Spirit of God. They did not reject the Spirit of God. Sometimes in our lives, the Spirit of God will tell us to act. Sometimes the Spirit of God will tell us to do certain things. Sometimes the Spirit of God might impress upon you to talk to your co-worker about Christ. Are you going to be led by the Spirit? Or are you going to reject the Spirit? You know, the, the, the disciples and the owners of the animals, they both show faith and their willingness to be led by the Spirit. And that's what it takes, faith and willingness to be led of the Spirit. But what I want to do is I want to tell you what exactly that will do for you. I mean, I'm standing up here and I'm telling you to step out on faith and I'm telling you to let the Spirit lead you, but i got to tell you the result of that. We just read Romans 8, 14. For, listen to it again. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well, Galatians, let me read for you Galatians 3, uh, 3.26. For ye all are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see a common theme there? You see, how do I prove I'm a child of God? Um, how do I benefit from the relationship I have as a child of God? Um, how do I, as a child of God, please my Heavenly Father? I step out in faith and I obey the Spirit of God. It's that simple. It is that simple. What God is in heaven, he's saying today, look, you are my kids. You're my kids. And I need you not only to do what I say, but I need you to trust that I'm going to take care of you. I need you to trust that. Number two, this morning, we have the prophecy of the corner. 
the prophecy of the corner. Let's look back at verse number 36. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. See, as he's riding down into Jerusalem, it was such a joyous occasion. It was such a great thing that the Bible says that the disciples began to praise God and the disciples began to sing. But I want you to know that they didn't just make up this song off the top of their heads. Every once in a while, I'll be singing a song and I'll know the first three or four words. And then uh, she was already laughing. Um, I'll start singing the first three or four words and then I forget the rest of the song. But I'm pretty good at making up words. So I'll just kind of throw words in there that kind of sound right. And if you say them fast, they sound like they fit in there. But they're totally wrong. And she hates when I make up my own lyrics to songs. But I'm telling you, the disciples didn't make up their own lyrics. They were actually singing a song from the Bible. They were actually singing Psalms 118. You see, the book of Psalms in the Bible was their songbook. Just like me and you, we'd be walking down the street or we'd be walking in the woods and we'd be singing victory in Jesus or we'd be singing leaning on the everlasting arms because that's what's in our hymnal. Well, for the, for the Jews, the book of Psalms was their hymnal and they were singing Psalms 118. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because Psalms 118 is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm, and, and, and this psalm that they were singing, me and you are familiar with it too. In fact, a song that me and you sing sings comes from Psalms 118. Have you ever heard the song, This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made, that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it. That's Psalms 118. You were singing Psalms 118 and you didn't even know it. This is the psalm that they were singing that day. And they were saying, this is the day the Lord hath made. What day? What day are they talking about? The day that God establishes the king. They're crying out, and these are the words that they're singing. Hosanna, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And the disciples are singing, and the disciples are rejoicing, and they're singing out loud, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're singing this psalm. They're singing Psalms 118, and the, the Pharisees hear it. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, uh, they're singing a messianic psalm. They're talking about you. That's blasphemous. You need to tell them to be quiet. You need to rebuke them. You need to rebuke your disciples and you need to tell them to be quiet. Now what, the, now what Jesus said back, Jesus' response to me was very, very interesting. And you guys know me. I love things that are interesting. 
When I hear something interesting in the Bible, I got to study it and I got to figure it out and I got to poke and prod at it a little bit. So let's look at what Jesus said. I tell you that if these stones should hold their peace, the stones, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, it would seem there that Jesus makes an offhand comment that really didn't mean anything. He made an offhand comment, and what he was saying that if the disciples quit singing, the rocks on the ground would start singing. No, he wasn't talking about the rolling stones, but he was talking about, he, he was talking about the rocks on the ground. And if the disciples stopped singing, that the rocks on the ground would, would start singing. The occasion was that joyous, it was that special, and it was that unique. But if I could, let me tell you just, let me give you just a little bit of, little, a tidbit of information about the character of our Lord and Savior. Jesus didn't make offhand comments. Every single thing that came out of Jesus' mouth was on purpose. He did not make on offhand, offhand comments. I have a buddy that I grew up with, and me and him have always been kind of heavy, and we always make fun of each other. I'd put a new pair of shoes on that were too tight, and he'd look and say, man, them shoes look like they're baking loaves of bread. And then, uh, then he'd sit down in a chair, and I'd say, man, that chair's probably screaming right now. You know, that's just some different, just making fun of each other. Just say things that really don't matter, that, that really don't mean anything. But while me and you might make statements like that, why me and you might make, make offhand comments that don't mean anything and really don't matter, Jesus was not like that. Every word that came out of Jesus' mouth was thought out. Every word that came out of Jesus' mouth was methodical. It had a reason. It was intentional. And you know, it's interesting that Jesus started talking about stones here because the disciples were just singing about stones. If you, look, if you read back at Psalms 118, verse 22, they were, singing, they, were, they were singing about a stone. If you look at verse number 22, it says, The stone which the builders refused, this is in Psalms 118, the, the stone that the, which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that refused the head of the corner. Now, there's a story in the Jewish tradition, and the story goes like this. Back when Solomon was, was building his, when started the commission of building of the temple, and they had to quarry the stones for the temple. What they do is they went on the other side of Mount Moriah to a little hill, and they started digging into the side of that hill, and they, uh, they found the stones, and they would chisel and pull these stones out of the side of this mountain where the, the caves actually go under Jerusalem where they pulled the stones to build the temple. They would pull these stones out to build the temple, and, and they would send these stones to the, to the, to the temple site, and uh, when the, 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 the caves and indentions of where they pulled these stones out, that little area is called Solomon's Quarries. And on one side of a little hill where they pulled these stones out, it made the indention of a skull. And they called the name of that place Golgotha, and they called it Calvary. And that's how it got its look of a skull because they were pulling stones out to build the temple. And what they would do is they would send these stones to the temple site 
And the only thing that the builders at the temple site would do was put the thing together. There was no mortar. There was to be no tool or trowel, no chipping of blocks at the temple site. So what would happen is at the quarry, they would have their plans and they'd have their specs and they'd have their measurements and they'd get a stone and they'd get a block and they would on that stone, they would measure it and they would put markings on it. And then what they would do is they would send that stone with the markings to the building site. The builders would get the stone and they didn't have any plans. All they had was the markings on the stone. According to the markings on the stone, they knew exactly where that stone would go in the temple. One day they're at the building site and they get a stone with no markings on it. So they look around it, they look at the stone and man, there's no markings on it. So what do they do? They send the stone back to the quarry. Well, years later, the stone is, the, the, the building is finished and they're getting ready to dedicate it. And they look around the building and it's missing one stone. It's missing the chief cornerstone. And they say, man, if we don't have this chief cornerstone, this building's going to fall down one day. If we don't have this chief cornerstone, this building is not going to last. And so they send back to the quarry and they say, hey, uh, we're about to dedicate this building. We need the chief cornerstone. So the quarry gets the message and the quarry sends back a message and they say, we've already sent it to you. And then uh, the, the, the builders say, no, you haven't. And the quarry says, look at our plans. Yes, we did. We sent it to you. And so there was a lot of confusion and it took a little while. But one day this guy was at the quarry and he was, he was going through some bushes and he was going through some vines and he found something. He pulled the bushes away and he pulled the vines off of it and it was a big stone. They took the stone and they took it to the temple and they placed it in that spot. And sure enough, the stone that the builders had initially rejected, the stone that was refused, it just so happened to be that was the chief cornerstone of the building. Now, this story is Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible. So you take it and you decide whether it's true or false. But I will tell you that there's a reference in Acts 4.11. Acts 4.11 says this. It says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And you know, the, that cornerstone, that cornerstone, of course, that stone is Jesus. The builders of the Jewish religion had rejected him. They had rejected him. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The chief cornerstone upon which the kingdom of God is to be built is that stone that was set aside by the religious leaders. It was rejected by the Jewish religion. And that chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Peter said it best in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 6, he says, 4 through 6, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 
Did you hear what that just said? It said that while Jesus is the chief cornerstone, it says me and you are lively stones. So when Jesus said, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. What he was saying is, is that if the disciples stopped singing, all these other people around would start to sing. For we are lively stones that build a spiritual house and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus the foundation of your life? What's the foundation of your life? What is your life centered around? What is your life built on? Is your life centered around your job? Is your job the most important thing in your life? If your job is the most important thing in your life, then it's what your foundation is built on. And I'm sorry to tell you, if your job is your foundation, your house is going to fall down. Your life is going to fail. Is your spouse your foundation? Man, Amanda, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. But if your spouse is the foundation of your life, your house is going to fall. Is an addiction the foundation of your life? Alcohol, drugs, doesn't matter what it is. Hey, if an addiction is the sin of your life and it's the foundation of your life and it's around everything, you're de every decision you make centers around that, then your house is going to fall. Let me tell you today that Jesus needs to be the hub and everything that comes out, all the spokes that come out, need to go around and center around Jesus Christ. What is the most important thing in your life? Is it your relationship with Jesus or is it something else? Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is it money? Is it a promotion? Is it a car? Is it a truck? What is the foundation of your life? What do you base your decisions on? And if you don't base your decisions on that book, your house will fall down. Because Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is to be the foundation of your life. And he is to be in the center of every decision you make. And if it's not, just like a house of cards, the wind's going to blow it down one day. Number three, we have the prophecy of the consequence. Prophecy of the consequence. Let's look back at verse number 41. And he was, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, that the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, and thine enemies shall, be a, shall cast a trench about thee, and can pass thee round about, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. As Jesus crests over the Mount of Olives, he descends into the Kidron Valley. He gets a very good view of Jerusalem. The Bible says when he gets this view of Jerusalem, that he begins to weep. And when he weeps, he says this, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day. What he's saying is, if you only knew. If you only knew that today was supposed to be the day. If you only know that this is what everything was leading up to. If you only knew that. 
What day is he talking about? I want you to remember that the disciples were just singing, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What day was it? It was the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It was the day that Messiah came. Everything that had happened from the time God said, let there be light, has been leading up to this point. This was the point at which the Messiah comes. This was their king. This was their savior. This was their anointed one. This was their Messiah. And what would they do? They would reject him. So why does Jesus weep? Does he weep at the future that lies before him? Does he weep because he must die? Let me make this statement. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die. And he knew it. There was absolutely no getting around it. In fact, in John 3.14, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There are people that, te- that teach in, in churches and seminaries. In fact, I had a teacher that t- taught this in my seminary. And there are people that teach that Jesus came and he wanted the Jews to accept him. That was plan A. And when the Jews rejected him, he went to plan B, which is the cross. I'm here to tell you today that the cross was not plan B. The cross was always plan A. They had to reject Christ. He had to die. It was preordained through the foreknowledge of God. It was preordained that he should die. You see, from our perspective, we make our own decisions. And that is true. 100% true. You have what the Bible calls liberty. Anytime you see the word liberty in the Bible, what that's talking about is your free will. You have liberty. You have free will. You can make your own decisions. And while me and you, we live our lives in our free will and we make our own decisions, we come to a crossroads. We can go left or we can go right. We can choose A. We can choose B. We can choose M&Ms or we can choose Skittles. We can go whichever way we want to go. These decisions in the moment have an impact on our lives. We can make a decision in our lives at a crossroads that completely takes us in a completely different direction. So while in our lives, you see, we have free will and life is a series of choices that can go one way or one way or another. That's how me and you see things. That is not how God sees us. That is not at all how God sees us. God is omniscient, which means he is all-knowing. He knows the beginning of the story. He knows the middle of the story. He knows the end of the story. He knows what decisions we're going to make. God looks at the world as a completed book. That's how he sees it. That's why his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Jesus had to die for us to be redeemed. So what Jesus did in his infinite wisdom is he inserted himself into the story where that could happen. The Jews could not have accepted him at that time. He was weeping at their blindness. But then as a result of of, of he, he was weeping at the result of that blindness. He was weeping 
at the tragedy that would befall them. You see, while Jesus had to die, while he had to die, and that was going to happen no matter what, in the moment, the people that crucified him, they made their own decision. He did not force them. He, they met the people in that moment. They made their own decisions. They made their own decisions of their own free will in that moment. And because of their decision, there had to be a consequence. And Jesus knew what the consequence was. You see, 40 years from that day, emperor, the, the, the Jews would rebel against the Roman oppressors. And the emperor Nero would send a man named Titus. Titus would march on Jerusalem and utterly destroy it. He would tear down the temple. There would not be one brick left. And in doing so, he would kill over one million Jews. That was the consequence. The whole place was to be leveled. Not one stone left upon another. All these tremendous Jewish monuments in Jerusalem were to be leveled. And as Jesus looking at this city, weeping because it's going to be destroyed, this is the day the Lord has made. This is the day that God had planned the redemption of Israel. This was the unveiling of the Messiah to the people. Prior to this day, he would not tell people who, it was, who he was. But not today. This is the day the Lord had made. The day in history when the Messiah would come. You know, it, let me give you a little bit more prophecy here. It's no mistake that Palm Sunday... Uh, happened 173,880 days after the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem. The command was given to rebuild Jerusalem by Xerxes on uh, March, 4, Mar March 14, 445 B.C., which according to, the, to Daniel the prophet, from the time the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem to the time the coming Messiah was... Seven sevens and 62 sevens. That comes out to 483 years or 173,880 days according to the Babylonian calendar. So from the day that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem to the day the Messiah rode in on that Palm Sunday was exactly 173,880 days and it fulfills Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But they, they didn't rejoice. Well, maybe for a little while. But you know what they did at the end? Is they rejected him. And knowing that he was to be, to be despised. And knowing that he was to be rejected. He wept as he looked at the city. Because of the blindness and the resulted devastation that blindness would bring. Listen to this. Even though the city wasn't destroyed yet, Jesus looked at it and he saw it as destroyed. Even though the city wasn't destroyed yet, Jesus knew it would be. And for Jesus, it was as if it had already happened. You know, saying it like that, that kind of sounds like a Bible verse. John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. 
Let me tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that there's someone in this room today that is condemned to hell and you don't know it. I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid that the blindness of your sin, yet your sin has blinded you for your need of a Savior. And the thing is, is I don't know who you are. Maybe you're a visitor. Maybe you're a regular. I don't know who you could be. But I am so afraid that there's somebody in here today you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Please get that settled before you leave today. Let me tell you, this is the day the Lord has made for you to be saved. And we will rejoice and be glad in it if you come and accept him as your Savior. So why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus meticulously, painstakingly, accurately, so precisely go through such great lengths to make sure that the prophecy was fulfilled? Let me put it to you like this. April 1st, 1960, the first weather satellite was sent into outer space. This weather satellite was sent into outer space and it was the first time we had sent pictures back to earth for, for uh, meteorological purposes. And it completely changed long-term forecasts. You don't get your 10-day forecast without a weather satellite. And, uh, you know, it, it revolutionized things because what it did is it allowed you to see the bigger picture. And, and going out in space allows us to see things that we couldn't have normally seen because we're too close to what's really going on. And that's what prophecy does. See, prophecy in a similar way, prophecy takes us out of the limitations of seeing what's in our immediate circumstances and it helps us to see the big picture. So what should be the result of this? Number one, that we can be good stewards with what the Lord has given us. So the Lord has given us a book and he's given us a church and he's given us the word of God and we need to be good stewards of that and also so we can be thankful. Are you thankful today? Are you thankful that he rode in Jerusalem as a Messiah? Will you be thankful next week when we celebrate him dying on that cross and raising from the dead? We need to be thankful. We have to be thankful. Let me say this. Jesus appeared that day as he crested over the horizon. He appeared in the eastern sky. And although there was praise and although there was singing, ultimately he, he was rejected. One day, one day he will appear in the eastern sky again. And on that day, he will not be rejected. And on that day, we will sing. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.